Good morning. It's Friday, March 19th. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Shouldn't it be called a hate crime? That's what a lot of Asian-American advocates are asking after the murder of eight people in Georgia, six of whom were women of Asian descent. Now, the answer to that question comes down to a strict legal definition that isn't applied very often. Time magazine breaks it down. The bar for prosecuting something as a hate crime is really high. Law enforcement has to be able to prove an incident was motivated by hate or bias. So this is a very specific legal classification. But so many Asian Americans and allies are saying this case seems so clear. Just look at the racial makeup of the victims, not to mention the spike of anti-Asian violence that we're seeing across the country. But time explains the way that hate crime laws are written. Prosecutors would need more evidence to make this argument in court. For example, they'd need to be able to point to the suspect's past words, actions, or membership in certain groups. But things like the victim's race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation, those facts alone are not enough to rest a case on. Reporting and prosecution of hate crimes is just really, really low. Justice Department crime victim surveys show there are some 250,000 suspected hate crimes in the U.S. each year. And I say suspected because most are never reported to police. Time points to a 2019 study showing state attorneys referred suspected hate crimes to the federal government just 2,000 times. Only 15% of those referrals turned into prosecutions. And not only is prosecution of hate crimes very rare, but record-keeping is spotty and inconsistent. Tracking at the federal level is based on voluntary participation by local law enforcement. Three states don't have any hate crime laws at all. Many that do have no requirement to track them. Georgia does have a hate crime law on the books, but it's relatively new. It was just passed last year after the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. The filibuster is back in the news this week. President Biden signaled he's open to changing the Senate rule that allows the minority party to stop legislation from moving forward without 60 votes. Listen to what he said in an interview on ABC. I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do it what it used to be when I first got to the Senate and back in the old days when you used to be around there. And that is that a filibuster, you had to stand up and command the floor. And you had to keep talking alone. You couldn't call for... So let's go back to the old days. In the Washington Post, two historians write about how this tactic, the filibuster, has been used to deny fundamental rights to African Americans. They bring up the Dyer anti-lynching bill in 1922 as a case in point. It was meant to stop widespread violence against black people in the decades after the Civil Rights War. Southern Democrats used the filibuster to squash this bill in a way that really hadn't been done before. Yeah, they gummed up the Senate with procedural moves. They held the floor hostage by reading pamphlets and newspapers. Eventually, the anti-lynching bill failed. And this set the stage for senators to block future civil rights bills. 
Senator Strom Thurmond held the floor for a record 24 hours to stall the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And opponents of the 1964 Civil Rights Act stopped the Senate for 60 working days. There's some poetic timing to this filibuster discussion. This week, the Senate introduced voting rights legislation that could impact tens of millions of people in the U.S. That is, unless it's filibustered. This week, the governor of Nebraska held a press conference inside a butcher shop. He stood there under the yellowish lights with gleaming cuts of meat on display behind him. And he told his constituents. That is a direct attack on our way of life here in Nebraska. That's Governor Pete Ricketts, who has declared tomorrow meat on the menu day. It's in response to what's happening in neighboring Colorado, where the governor declared tomorrow meat out day. It's a way to encourage Coloradans to consider not eating meat for the day. It was just a ceremonial proclamation, the kind of thing that most people never really pay attention to. But it's become a big issue in these two states. Political magazine has this story. Colorado Governor Jared Polis is a Democrat, and he may have thought he was just discouraging eating meat for a day, something he saw as promoting good health and environmental policies. But some of his critics want him to choke on that message. Raising and processing meat is big business in Colorado. And the governor's political enemies have jumped on the issue, too. Just listen to Dan Kaplis, a conservative talk radio host in Colorado. Be like Gavin Newsom saying, let's do a day without beaches in California. I mean, it's to attack a state's own industry, 170,000 jobs. This isn't just some political theater. Politico reports Colorado conservatives see their power slipping away. This was once a state where power swung back and forth between the parties, but... Since 2008, the state has voted blue in every presidential election, and now Democrats hold every statewide elected office. After a pandemic hiatus, March Madness is officially back. ESPN says you're going to want to keep your eyes on two players. One of them plays in the women's tournament, the other in the men's. And they're both super talented, but this story is not just about their skills. It's about their close, lifelong friendship. Jalen Suggs and Paige Beckers are both freshmen who've had phenomenal seasons. Suggs plays for Gonzaga, which is undefeated, ranked number one, and could win its first national championship this year. He's also on track to be one of the top picks in the 2021 NBA draft. Beckers plays for UConn. She's also having an outstanding season. She's trying to win the title for her school for the first time since 2016. This ESPN article tells the story of these two superstar players and their bond that goes back to their elementary school years in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. They grew up obsessing over the game together, cheering each other on and, of course, trash talking sometimes, but mostly just (laughs) celebrating each other's victories. And they stayed in touch through the amateur leagues and eventually both made it to basketball powerhouses on opposite sides of the country. One of the best parts of this story is really just the pictures. You see them hugging each other, smiling, and then intensely watching each other on the court. It makes you feel good. Now, Suggs will take the court for Gonzaga tomorrow. Beckers and UConn play on Sunday. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, 
Check out some of our audio stories. Have a great weekend. And for those who celebrate the Persian New Year, Eid Shama Mubarak.